Hello, I'm Matthew Bradbury and welcome to The Beverage Report, a student-led podcast ran out of the London School of Economics, Department of Economics. First, I'd just like to say thank you so much for coming on taking the time out to do this. Um, but before we begin, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your time at the bank and the kind of periods that that covered? Okay. Uh, I mean, my career has spanned academia and public service. Uh, so actually, I started out as a civil servant at the Treasury. Uh, but then came to LIC and had about 20 years here before I went to the bank in 2000. Um, At that point as their chief economist um, and um, that post lasted until 2008 uh, when I uh, moved up to be deputy governor for monetary policy in succession to Rachel Lomax Uh, and I stayed through there until 2014. Um, so I was there for the first year of Mark Carney's uh, governorship. Why that move from academia into um, into policy, into the Bank of England? Oh, I mean, I'd always been somebody who was interested in policy. Um, and even when I was here as an academic, um, after I left the Treasury, I used to keep close links with the Treasury. I used to chair their academic panel, for instance. And then starting from... Uh, the first day after Black Wednesday in 1992, I used to do a day a week as an academic consultant. Uh, and my research has always largely been at the policy end. Um, and, uh, so I did quite a lot of work on uh, the reason why unemployment was so persistently high in the 1980s and early 1990s and appropriate policy responses. Uh, my PhD is partly on monetary policy issues, uh, nominal income targetry, which is coming back into uh, fashion. Uh, and I always wanted to do a, a high-level policy uh, job, whether that was in the Treasury, something like the Chief Economic Advisor there, uh, or um, actually as a policy maker once the Monetary Policy Committee was created in 1997. Why did you decide to enter that via academia, rather than, say, just going... You worked at the Treasury originally, just staying there. Um, It's largely um, a a mix of uh, random events. (laughs) Um, So uh, I worked as a forecaster initially at the Treasury for four years. Um, And um, one of the... Uh, sort of perks of the job, if you like, was taking study leave for a year, uh, which um, other colleagues at the Treasury would often come here and do the Masters, for instance. So somebody like David Ramsden, who's now uh, a Deputy Governor for Markets at the bank, but was Chief Economic Advisor at the Treasury, I taught him as a Masters student, for instance. so, but up at the time, and this is going back to 1979, I uh, thought that while I was single, it would be quite nice to go and study in the States. And originally, I intended just going for a year uh, to do the equivalent of a master's, but ended up uh, staying around a bit longer and completing a PhD uh, at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Um, and that also meant that. Uh, I had the option of pursuing an academic career in a way I didn't before. And um, uh, at the time when I went back, so this was the early 80s, 
Um, there was a certain amount of discontent among treasury economists. Um, there was a government that had its views about what needed to be done, but wasn't so interested in analysis of um, uh, those policies. Uh, quite a lot of my uh, colleagues at the time were moving sometimes to the city or whatever. And purely by chance, Richard Layard, um, who I was sitting next to at a, a lunch one day, a, a Sunday lunch that I'd been invited to, uh, hearing that I was thinking about going back on the American job market as an, um, uh, to find an academic job, um, said, oh, well, you know, why don't you come to LSE? Uh, and originally the idea was I'd come as a research assistant at the, um, or research officer, I should say, at the, what was then the Centre for Labour Economics. Um, and that, uh, before very long, became a, a lectureship. And as I spent the best part of 20 years teaching macroeconomics, uh, the undergraduate and graduate levels. And, and if you're chatting to a, you know, a budding economist undergrad who yeah. hopefully is listening to this and they have the interest in kind of making a, making a mark on the world, making it a better place, do you think that going via a PhD um, into policy advisory positions is the, like, is that, do you, would you recommend that as the route? Uh, I have to say, if you want to be in the, uh, the world of policy, I mean, a PhD is, is certainly not essential. I do think graduate training of some sort, so a decent master's, uh, is pretty essential if you want to be a professional economist in the policy world. Whereas I would regard a PhD as a, a bit more of a, an optional add-on. Uh, the return to it is probably higher in somewhere like the Bank of England or a central, equivalent central bank elsewhere which tend to have bigger research departments um, uh, where there's more of an identifiable career track as a, as a researcher. Um, whereas if you're in a finance ministry um, or another government department, um, they generally don't have the luxury of spending much time being able to do uh, high quality research. You have to produce uh, analysis that hits the spot to probably a much tighter time scale um, than you have in the central banking world. So what's interesting about talking about central banking world? What's interesting about your time period there is that you fall over um, your first period as the as the chief economist falls over these like years of plenty. You have um, ten continuous years of economic growth, um, and then you know suddenly it's two thousand and eight. You're the deputy governor of monetary policy, and then you know the financial crisis happens. So it's interesting just the comparison and you have these years of plenty then years of a lot, lot less. So, I mean, on those years of plenty, just first, what is it that the chief economist does? Um, the, um, uh, the first thing to be said is that uh, the chief economist role, at least when I was in it, is structured slightly differently uh, um, uh, at the moment while Andy Haldane is chief economist. But at the time, I was also the executive director for the monetary analysis and statistics area. Uh, so that meant uh, there was a significant uh, management element to the role. Uh, there's about 300 people in that directorate, um, 100 or so economists, but then there's statisticians. Uh, the bank's uh, regional agencies are also 
part of it. They spend their time talking to businesses, finding out what's going on on the ground. Um, so there's a significant managerial chunk of making sure the machine is operating, providing the analysis um, for the MPC when they meet every month to, uh, to take the monetary policy decision. Um, and then on top of that, um, I was obviously a member of the Monetary Policy uh, Committee and latterly also the Financial Policy Committee. So like other committee members, um, you know, I would have to be on top of all of the uh, analysis that was going in um, uh, into the policy decision. And also I had a, uh, a central role in overseeing the key publications, the inflation report in particular, um, and I felt that was very, very much my responsibility to make sure that that was drafted properly, um, understandably, got the messages across uh, that we want, uh, and so forth. Uh, so that was the central uh, part of my role. Uh, in addition, as part of the, as one of the executive directors, uh, of the bank, I would also be involved in general bank management issues spanning across the piece, so personnel issues, um, uh, you know, all, almost unlimited range of things. And that also meant when the financial crisis uh, began, so I was still chief economist in the early days, uh, say during the time when Northern Rock got into difficulty, uh, but I would still get involved uh, to a degree in questions around the response to that, uh, although the bigger part of my role then was obviously in crafting monetary policy response to the downturn. So in that period, um, up until the financial crisis, you have, you know, as I said earlier, you have a prolonged period of growth and inflation always stays at around 2%. So what's going right in this period that wasn't previously? Had we cracked monetary policy? Okay, well, this is, it's a period that uh, economists had labelled the great moderation, although over here uh, we sometimes called it the great stability. Um, and actually, if you look at the um, 15 years or so leading up uh, to the financial crisis, uh, they're easily uh, the most stable period in British economic history data going back to the uh, late 18th century. Uh, so low and stable inflation, steady growth. Um, Mervyn King in a speech labelled it the nice decade, non-inflationary, consistently expansionary. Uh, now we were at pains to say don't assume this is going to continue uh, and that speech by Mervyn in particular was saying how Thing, how you shouldn't assume that uh, things would remain as benign going forward. Um, but that said, we did spend a lot of time, not just at the Bank of England, but also other central banks and macroeconomists more generally, trying to understand why this uh, uh, extreme stability or undue stability had come about. Um, and there were several hypotheses, one of which was better policy making, uh, in particular delegation of monetary policy to central banks, 
had made had pegged inflation expectations, um, uh, and that um, was helping to create stability. Uh, other people had uh, pointed to developments in financial markets, better ways of spreading risk, um, uh, better inventory man inventory management just in time production and so forth um, and simply it might have been good luck if you go back to the 70s we had oil price shocks uh, things like that uh, whereas although there were disturbances in the uh, latter part of the 90s and the early part of the, the 2000s you know that they kept they looked sort of a bit smaller mm. in the, the, the grand scheme of things uh, so there was a, there are a number of competing hypotheses um, I don't think it was the case that central banks thought it was all down to them. You do sometimes see uh, articles saying, oh, you know, the central banks were suffering from hubris and so forth. But, you know, we, we were actually much more modest about that. Um, in fact, one of the ironic things about it uh, was that we'd organised an international conference at the bank um, in September 2007 with researchers from other central banks, top academics, so people like Tom Sargent uh, were there, uh, on the topic of the great moderation, what had caused it, would it continue, and so forth. Um, and as it was, the conference coincided with the start of the run on Northern Rock. So the conference was Thursday, Friday, uh, and um, during the Thursday, we were in the process of organising the financial support arrangements for Northern Rock, which then got leaked onto the uh, uh, into the media um, that evening, courtesy of Robert Peston. Um, and uh, overnight, you had the first internet run on the bank with. Uh, people with online accounts starting withdrawing savings, thinking, well, if they're getting a support from the Bank of England, they must be in trouble. And then the following day, you had the, the queues on the street and so forth. Um, and I was actually chairing the first session the following, uh, uh, on that Friday morning. And of course, the attendees at the conference have been switching on their uh, televisions in their hotel room to see lead item was, uh, you know, this run on the, the rock and what happened today. And I, you know, I was able to say, well, the bank has just made its largest ever financial support arrangement available to the rock. Uh, but that in itself, and this is an important lesson for those who think, you know, all you need is the central bank to stand ready as a lender of last resort, isn't necessarily enough to stem a run, and the problem was uh, that um, uh, deposit accounts above uh, a rather small level were only 90% protected, not 100%. And the sheer fact that people heard that the Bank of England was providing financial, uh, uh, financial support to Northern Rock made them uh, draw the conclusion that the bank was unsound, um, so it, if you like, it was, the stigma was cast upon it. Um, and one of the lessons uh, from that episode, aside from the fact that you need full 
uh, insurance of deposits to a, a more reasonable level um, is that ideally you want to be able to uh, make uh, loan supports to a bank in difficulty uh, covert rather than public and the law was subsequently changed in the following months to make it possible for us to provide covert support to a bank that's in difficulty and only reveal the, uh, the fact that support was provided further down the road once the emergency was passed. And that was very important for when it came to the rescues of um, uh, Lloyds that had bought Halifax Bank of Scotland and the Royal Bank of Scotland. One thing that Alistair Darling um, emphasised quite heavily was that procedures that were built to cope with the collapse of Northern Rock um, were then very helpful when it came to RBS. Um, it allowed procedures to be put in place almost as a dry run that could then be used again for RBS. So if that was the experience from within the Treasury, would you say a similar thing was true from within the bank? Oh, yes. That, I mean, that was certainly the case. Now, uh, you know, I would admit Northern Rock was not uh, the Bank of England's finest uh, hour, and indeed it wasn't the so-called tripartite's finest hour. And In the tripartite sense? being the, uh, the Treasury, the Financial Services Agency, and uh, uh, the bank. Um, In what sense wasn't it the finest hour? Well, they, 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 uh, in principle, the three were meant to operate together uh, in the event of um, uh, 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 problems in the bank or in the, the system. And um, what transpired is that although you know, there had been plenty of war games between the three of us uh, ahead of the crisis and uh, so forth, in practice when it came down to it, um, the lines of communication were not as good as they should have been. The bank didn't have the information from the FSA that it really needed. When the bank was doing supervision, of course, it actually had the information in-house. Now it was held by another organisation. Uh, if you're uh, the supervisor, your natural inclination, if a bank gets into any sort of difficulty, say, oh, it's a temporary problem because you know uh, you don't think it should reflect on your decisions uh, so all the pressure was just on the bank I'll just shell out money whereas from our perspective we wanted to know did Northern Rock have a viable uh, business model or not uh, and I think um, you know exposed uh, you would say that actually Northern Rock's business model which was very heavily reliant on short-term wholesale funding, which could be withdrawn at short notice, uh, just wasn't viable. It relied 70-80% on short-term wholesale funding. The next biggest um, share of wholesale funding for any UK bank was down 40% or less. So it was very vulnerable when wholesale markets closed in August 2007. Um, and that market was never going to come back in the same sort of way. So the business model uh, had some fundamental flaws. Um, and, uh, you know, that was the reason why, um, you know, particularly the then Governor Mervyn King took the view that, um, you know, we needed to recognise this, that this wasn't just a temporary liquidity problem, 
there were some fundamental structural problems that needed to be addressed, possibly by finding a buyer for Northern Rock, possibly by bringing it into public ownership, uh, which was what actually happened. Um, but those, so you had these sorts of stresses in the, uh, the tripartite. And, you know, it's like all of these things, you never really know how well emergency response mechanisms uh, will operate until they're actually tested. Um, but what we did learn from that episode was the deficiencies of the way the tripartite was working, the deficiencies in the legislation, uh, the extent to which um, uh, uh, deposits, bank deposits were inadequately insured, um, the requirement that if the bank was providing support it had to be made public under the so-called market abuses directive, uh, which was a, an EU law uh, that's been put into uh, UK law. Uh, so there's a number of these sorts of things and they could be uh, rectified over the ensuing months. So it means that when the real crisis hit, uh, after Lehman's collapsed, we were in a much better position to deal with it. Equally, I guess, um, if you're particularly looking at the bank, in the early stages of the crisis, we had um, quite limited mechanisms for providing uh, liquidity support to banks that were in difficulty. Uh, so there was an overnight borrowing facility, which was just part of our normal market operations uh, structure, which was basically there to implement monetary policy to ensure that the overnight interest rate was close to the policy rate that the MPC set. Uh, but it allowed um, banks to borrow uh, overnight or put money on deposit overnight. It's really a bit more like a frictional facility. Um, the only other thing we had was emergency liquidity assistance, as it's called, which is where you have a bespoke facility for a bank that's got into substantial uh, difficulty, uh, might be borrowing against um, unconventional assets, unconventional collateral. Um, and what uh, we did do uh, between the collapse of Northern Rock and the collapse of Lehman is introduce a range of other facilities. So, um, in particular, uh, auction, having auctions of funds where people could bid for funds, and that gives cover. You know, if lots of people are bidding, you don't necessarily single out one particular institution, uh, and making those loans available for longer terms, three months, sometimes even longer, and against a wider range of collateral than we would normally lend against. Uh, so there was much more flexibility in our um, channels for getting funds to banks by the time Lehman's collapsed than there was at the time of the collapse of Northern Rock. 2008 is often one of those things that's mentioned as, you know, one of the worst events to hit England in the last hundred years, or one of the worst events to hit the world. As, as all of this is going wrong, at what point from Northern Rock collapsing to Lehman's, um, do you start to get the idea that it is this, you know, once in a hundred years-esque event? Yeah, one thing I would say, it's not 
the worst event. <laughs> um, uh, but if you're looking at purely financial events, it is, it's difficult to see financial crises, uh, which are really on the same scale. Um, the financial uh, eruptions of the interwar years were severe, but the issue there uh, was less the, the just the financial crisis themselves, but the way they were transmitted into the real economy, and in particular, you know, twenty five percent fall in activity in the US. That's huge. Um, and the key thing was that the policy response this time made sure that uh, the consequences for the real economy from the financial events uh, were, were much, uh, much more modest. They were still very significant, um, but um, the, uh, the financial event itself, which, you know, the uh, the financial system was very close to meltdown in uh, the uh, two or three weeks or the days uh, following the collapse of Lehman's. And the reason for that, essentially, is that there's a, obviously there's a lot of transactions between financial institutions. And financial institutions, uh, you, know, you may know that the person you're dealing with has lent a lot of money to Lehman's. And uh, is the question, you know, will they get their money back from Lehman's? So that makes you uh, more reluctant to uh, provide funds to um, uh, this, this other institution which has exposures to Lehman. And the nature of these exposures, and because they're complexity, you don't really know who is solvent and who might be insolvent. And in that sort of world, it's a world that um, uh, you might characterize it, uh, as um, being um, uh, subject to radical or nighty uncertainty, the safest thing to do is just hold cash or really liquid assets like government, safe government bonds. So you get this dash for, for safe assets and a, a complete contraction in lending against risky activities and unwillingness to extend loans to the real economy and so forth. Um, and it's quite difficult to um, stop that um, rush into safe assets and reverse it. So when I was doing my econ history course last year, when reading about the Great Depression, one of the authors who's cited very often is Ben Bernanke, mm -hmm. who then went on to become the chairman of the Fed. So it always struck me as very convenient there that the, the second worst, of, the second largest financial crisis in the last hundred years, the chairman of the Fed had studied the worst one quite extensively. Um, so how, how much do you think that people did learn from things going wrong in the past and how much was history a tool that was being used when making policy decisions? No, you're absolutely right. I think uh, the world was very lucky uh, that um, when the crisis hit, it had someone like Ben, who his field of study had been uh, the, um, you know, why, why the Great Recession was as deep as it was and the, mon the monetary mistakes then, 
there was a famous conference where Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz were there to celebrate their monetary history of the United States. And this was before Ben um, was chair, before the crisis. Um, and uh, Ben famously said, uh, uh, Milton and Anna, you're right. It was our fault, meaning the Fed. We won't do it again. <laughs> And you know he really um, used uh, his historical knowledge and his knowledge of economics uh, to uh, do his absolute utmost and the Fed's absolute utmost uh, to minimise the consequences of the problems in Wall Street to make sure they didn't spill over into Main Street. Uh, and equally, you know, I think it was the case where we were lucky here. Uh, to have um, you know someone like Mervyn King, who's a very uh, able um, uh, economist, you know, had studied financial markets uh, in depth. You know, he attracts some criticism for um, his slowness to respond in the early stages of the crisis. And I've you know uh, said that you know, our initial response. Perhaps um, when Northern Rock got into difficulty, it wasn't as adept as it might be. Um, but he pretty soon after that you know, began to appreciate uh, that there were you know, deep-seated problems here um, and was pushing things like the need to recapitalize uh, the banking system from very uh, early on, um, was looking for ways to increase the a uh, variety of ways that we could get funds to banks in difficulty and so forth. So that module I took on econ history was optional, whereas the maths ones are all mandated. Yes. Um, so if you think it's Ben Bernanke's role as a historian, or at least knowledge of history, which is so valuable, do you think that economics has an over-reliance on mathematics? Well, it's not necessarily an over-reliance on mathematics, although I do think there's a problem that economists can become too pleased about the elegance of the models and too focused on the models and not enough um, uh, with their applicability. I'm, you know, I'm very much schooled in what used to be known as the MIT tradition. Ben Bernanke is another MIT product. Um, and Sam Fisher was our um, godfather, if you like. And there are a lot of people in the policy-making world who've gone through that. Mario Draghi, actually, is another one. Um, and the uh, key um, feature, I think, of what I might call MIT economics, or MIT macroeconomics, was, you know, it's a recognition that um, models, all models are wrong. Um, but models can be useful sometimes to help you uh, make sense of complicated interactions. Um, and the key to being a good economist is knowing what model would be useful in a particular setting. I can remember Robert Solow uh, saying to him, Robert uh, Solow was my PhD, primary PhD supervisor at MIT, and he said it always really annoyed him when new classical economists criticised models for being ad hoc, particularly Keynesian models for, for being ad hoc, because you know they didn't have fully ni nice 
micro-foundations and so forth. Whereas, you know, he said, actually, that's exactly what you want, a model which is suitable for the purpose you're looking, ad hoc in the right sense. And you should be willing to use, you know, one model for uh, one problem, another model for another problem, depending on what the problem is. And then the, the art, I think to me, a good policy economist, is being able to pick the right model for the circumstances that you're faced with. Uh, and one that's not encumbered with loads of extraneous detail, but gets to the core of things that matter the, uh, at a particular time. Recognize the model is not a literal description of reality. It's more like a crutch to help you think about the problem. And then to that, you want to ally both an ability uh, to marshal data and extract information from data, and that's obviously where uh, statistics and econometrics come in. But the key, I think, here is you know not mindlessly applying regression techniques, but being able to understand what data mean um, and their imperfections. Uh, so you know, I think we ought to spend more time actually just thinking about how you go about measuring the economy and what statistics uh, mean. That's one of the things you learn as a policymaker. You have to spend a lot of time uh, trying to figure out is the data telling you about reality or not. And then the other uh, place in this is where the sort of the economic history comes in. You know, I think it is useful to have the broader perspective that economic history brings. Uh, one of the problems, perhaps, with a lot of um, uh, academic economists is uh, they behave, or at least up until the crisis, it was as though um, data didn't start until uh, you know 1960 or 1970, and there's no you know nothing to be learned from what went before. Um, and that perhaps coloured the view that financial crises were things that, you know, they happened in developing countries or maybe happened, uh, you know, a long time ago in uh, the 19th century in the UK. Whereas if people had had a better knowledge of the history of financial crises, they'd actually realised they're pretty frequent animals. And the idea that... Um, We'd, uh, uh, we'd crack the problem and it disappeared, um, you know, we, we would have been much more uh, um, self-critical and aware that that might be the case. And indeed, going back to your earlier questions regarding, regarding great moderation and so forth, I actually think one of the key factors um, which fed the crisis was precisely the undue degree of stability that you had people in financial markets and in the wider economy thinking, oh, this stability is going to continue into the future uh, and therefore the, they think the risks that they're exposed to are smaller and so forth. And that makes them more willing uh, to stake out positions which actually, when the crisis unfolded, turned out to be vulnerable. So if you like, periods of stability carry the seeds of their own destruction. And you say that as we're um, at the end of a very long period of stability. 
or potentially not at the end, but we're in a period of very long stability. There's, um, there's a lot of parallels that should be drawn in that, much like the Great Moderation, recently interest rates have been around 2%. Unemployment is surprisingly low following a crisis of this magnitude. Um, what's left in the toolkit? If it is something else that hits, at least last time, interest rates could be lowered. What do you think the policy response would be, um, coming from the bank or the government more broadly, to the next crisis? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would say, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to equate um, the last 10 years to the 10 years leading up to the crisis. Um, because whereas on the eve of the crisis, the economy has been going at a good, steady rate uh, for, for several years, um, the recovery since the crisis has been pretty muted. And nobody would say our economy is a booming or anything like that. Obviously, President Trump is uh, claiming that the US is booming. Part of that is simply reflecting a very large fiscal impulse. So uh, I don't think there's a problem that people have become reckless as regards to risk. Um, and in that sense, it's different. But there is a, another issue, and that is the one that you quite correctly focus on, which is that we're in a world where interest rates are still at very low levels. Um, so if there is a negative shock, uh, an adverse shock to demand, um, you know, it might be uh, driven by trade wars escalating, it might be a result of coronavirus in this country. You know, if Brexit turns out to be disorderly, um, you know, that could uh, hit demand uh, badly. So you, know, you could see it coming from lots of uh, quarters. And what would the bank do? What, what would policymakers do? Um, now, it's not true that the uh, cupboard is completely bare because the bank can cut bank rate a little bit. Bank rates are um, uh, uh, three quarters of a percent at the moment. Uh, so it can uh, cut a bit. Um, other countries have gone into slightly negative territory. Um, we were always wary of going too low because it could actually prove counterproductive uh, if you squeeze banks' profit margins uh, too much. And there's something that's technically known as the reversal rate, at which cutting rates actually has an adverse effect on aggregate demand rather than boost aggregate demand. So personally, I'd be cautious going certainly below a quarter um, but there's a little bit of a margin there. But then beyond that, the bank would have to probably restart asset purchases, uh, so further gilt purchases. Um, it has been dabbling with corporate bond purchases uh, recently. Now, I think the issue here is not that there's a technical limit, because in principle, the technical limit is when the central bank has bought all of the assets in the world. It, you know, it can buy government securities, it can buy corporate bonds, it can buy equities, it can buy real assets, it can buy real estate, it could buy fine arts, wine, you know, you name it, and foreign assets as well as domestic assets. So the technical uh, limit is a long, long way off. But long before you get there, you're into very difficult political economy territory. Um, and, you know, if, for instance, if the central bank is buying uh, uh, 
corporate bonds or you know, private credit instruments, there's always a risk of default on them, which is essentially a loss to the taxpayer, since ultimately the taxpayer and the central bank. If it buys equities, uh, it comes with control rights. So it's actually part nationalisation. That's politically very sensitive territory. Um, on top of those sorts of issues, there is increased awareness uh, of the distributional consequences of asset purchases. And this is something Theresa May, in her first speech as Prime Minister at the um, uh, Conservative Party conference, drew attention uh, to. So a key transmission channel for how asset purchases work is to drive up asset prices. You buy uh, government securities from um, a pension fund or whatever, and you give them a claim on the Bank of England instead. So they're then going to do something with that money um, by some other assets. So it drives up all asset prices, and that drives up wealth, increases spending through wealth effects, raises collateral values, so may enhance lending uh, because of that reason, reduces the cost of capital to firms. So they're the, the channels that, through which quantitative easing is supposed to work. But of course what it's doing, because it's driving up asset prices, is benefiting those who've got assets, so typically older people uh, and richer people, um, at the expense of those who don't have assets who need to acquire them. So younger people might want to save for their retirement. So there's dis significant distribution effects. And that increased awareness of those distribution effects makes it, I think, more uncomfortable to be using uh, large-scale asset purchases as a prime uh, counter-cyclical demand management tool. All is not lost, fortunately. Um, because the fact that we're living in this world of low underlying interest rates, what central banks call the natural rate or R star, has a silver lining because it means that it's uh, it less costly to use fiscal policy to borrow, to spend, to invest in infrastructure and so forth. And one of the notable development, I think, particularly over the past year, um, and it's been given a big spur by Olivier Blanchard's presidential address to the American Economic Association a year ago, where he, he pointed out that actually the, uh, we're living in a world where not only real interest rates are low, they're low relative to the growth rate, um, and in that sort of world, makes more sense to use fiscal policy, bond-financed fiscal expansions uh, as, as a temporary, uh, temporary tool. And uh, you've seen the rhetoric of central banks uh, changing in recent years to saying, look, next time you can't just rely on monetary policy, fiscal policy has to bear more of the burden. And I think uh, there is, this is certainly much more on the agenda than it was. Uh, and I think um, Sajid Javed, uh, in his remarks at Davos, intimated uh, he'd recognised this. 
um, and that um, you know, there's been suggestions there'll be more expansionary uh, stance in the, the upcoming budget. We'll see what that delivers. Um, but you know, that seems to be the direction that things are going, and I think that's the right direction. Yeah, because in the aftermath of the financial crisis, you have George Osborne pursuing austerity, tightening the economy. In the meantime, the bank is expanding and lowering interest rates, helping growth. So you mentioned there that you know this, it's been hinted that this won't continue going forwards, and that central bankers have, have kind of politely asked that that shouldn't be the case next. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing to remember, of course, the immediate response uh, after Lehman's collapsed was a fiscal expansion together with a monetary expansion. So, you know, 2009, and there was, uh, you know, a largely coordinated fiscal expansion across the, uh, the G20, and that was something very much that Gordon Brown um, pushed hard, and uh, we had the chair in. 2009 at the, the G20. So there was a big fiscal expansion uh, as an immediate response, and that was exactly right. Uh, the problem was for the UK is that left us with a budget deficit of 10% of GDP, which is fine as an emergency setting, but you can't really run a deficit of 10% of GDP year after year after year. Uh, so um, whoever had won the 2010 election, there would have needed to have been uh, fiscal consolidation. And indeed, Alastair Darling, uh, as um, uh, Chancellor, was running on the ticket of fiscal consolidation. Um, it's just, it wasn't as rapid a consolidation as uh, the Conservatives uh, were, were arguing for. But I think, it, you know, it's... Um, uh, I, I don't think one can disagree with the fact that some consolidation was necessary at that point. What one could argue about is the speed and how much of it went on taxes and how much on spending, those sorts of things. But the broad thrust of some consolidation, um, I think, was appropriate. And offsetting that consolidation with continued loose monetary policy. But as we've got to where we are now, and this world of unusually low interest rates has continued, that doesn't look like, to me, um, the right response going forward, one where the burden will be on monetary policy. So if we have a, another big shock, I think some of the burden really just has to be with fiscal policy again. We've got the room for it because of the low interest rate. Monetary policy can support it as well to a degree, but a big shock, I think, will need a fiscal response as well. And then to wrap up, what brings you hope? What brings me hope? Well, um, one, uh, one hopes that people learn from their mistakes and don't forget. And one of the worries always, say in financial markets, is people turn over. Uh, there's a saying that um, you get the next financial crisis when the last person who can uh, remember the previous one retires. Uh, so, uh, keeping institutional memory is important. And one way of in, uh, interpreting what the Financial Policy Committee, uh, which was created at the bank after the crisis, uh, to um, uh, run so-called macroprudential policy, is precisely a way of institutionalising that memory. Their job 
is to be on the lookout for emerging financial stability risks and head them off as best they can. Uh, and I do think there is more awareness uh, in financial markets and in the central banking and supervisory fraternity of those risks uh, now than there was pre-crisis. Uh, so I've got hope for that. Um, I, I think in this country uh, we do have the institutional and political structure which could allow an appropriate fiscal response if necessary. My worry actually would be in the Eurozone where um, there isn't the uh, single fiscal authority balances the, the European Central Bank um, and clearly some countries like Germany are still very loath to engage in fiscal uh, action even though that's the country with fiscal space. Uh, so I would be a bit worried about what might happen in the Eurozone if there's a um, slowdown. But at least here uh, I think we're in a, a not too bad a position. Uh, to respond to a, a shock if it comes. And what of the international cooperation again? Do you think that do you think that everyone could stand on the same side as they did in 2009 under Gordon Brown? Well that I think uh, would be harder because of the drift towards more populist governments, obviously in particular uh, President Trump and you know, the America First approach. And in general we've seen this sort of running down of the international rules-based order which underpins the IMF, the WTO, the World Bank. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it's difficult to get international cooperation really at the, the best of times because countries always have you know, particular interests and so forth. Um, but if you go back to um, 2000 and Nine, you know, by and large, the G20 did pull uh, together um, both in the macroeconomic response and the subsequent uh, re-regulation of the financial system. I think that's actually one of the areas where the, the G20 actually showed its worth. Um, whether it could be as effective this time around with people like Trump um, I'm less confident, I must admit. Well, we'll at least, we'll at least end it on the vaguely hopeful note that came before that. Then. Sir, Sir Professor Charlie Bean, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in again next time.